Revelation chapter 4. The chapter is only 11 verses long, and we'll be covering the entire chapter here this evening, but you'll see there is quite enough for us here in this chapter. Maybe I should have you put a finger in Revelation chapter 4 and turn back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. It's been a few months since we were back in Revelation chapter 1, but I want you to see how this verse, Revelation 1.19, provides an outline for the book of Revelation. We read here the command of Jesus to the Apostle John, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. In this one verse, we have an outline for the book of Revelation. First of all, you have the things which he had seen. Those are the things of Revelation chapter 1. Then the next phrase in verse 19 describes the things which are. That's Revelation chapters 2 and 3, the seven letters to the seven churches. Then finally in verse 19, we have a description of the things which will take place after this. Now, I want you to notice in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, it says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, where it says, Which will take place after this, it's the Greek phrase, meta tauta. Revelation chapter 4 begins with the ancient Greek words, meta tauta. It's a very clear link. This begins the third and the longest section of the book of Revelation, the things which shall take place after this. This is the juicy part. This is the prophetic part. This is the time in this uh, section that we have in front of us. It begins a heavenly perspective looking down on earth. Now, the Bible has many different important references to heaven. You have passages like Isaiah chapter 6 that we sang about tonight, where Isaiah says, I saw the Lord exalted in his throne, and high and lifted up his train filled the temple. You have passages like Ezekiel 1, which is an almost strange vision that Ezekiel had about the throne and the, and the heavenly scene there. And then you have passages describing the tabernacle of Moses, which the Bible tells us in the book of Exodus was actually a pattern of what heaven looks like. Now, in describing heaven to us here, what we have are, are images set before us, but really what we have is a much larger way, heaven's perspective of what's going to happen on earth. What we have in Revelation chapters 4 through 19 we're going to see God's judgment upon the world preceding Jesus' earthly reign. Now, we're not going to look at it from earth looking up to heaven as if it's coming at us. No, no, no. God's given us a grandstand seat for this. We get to join him in the heavenlies and look from heaven down upon earth and see what it looks like from that perspective. And God's judgments will be announced by a seven-sealed scroll, by seven trumpets, by seven signs, and by seven bowls that pour out the wrath of God. Revelation chapter 4 introduces us to the place that judgment comes from, God's throne in heaven. So let's take a look at it again, the first verse here. John writes, and he says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, 
And I'll show you the things which must take place after this. John hears a voice. And what was the voice he heard? Did you notice there in verse 1? It says, and the first voice which I heard. Well, what was the first voice that he heard? If you go back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, it tells us that the first voice that he heard was the voice of Jesus. This is the voice of Jesus calling out to John. And you know he paid attention. You know it caught him. It, it made his heart stand still for a moment. He turned and he looked and he heard that first voice, the voice that he heard back in Revelation chapter 1. And it was the voice of Jesus. And Jesus was calling John up into heaven through a door standing open in heaven. If you want to know what the voice sounded like, look at it there in verse 1. It says that it was like a trumpet. That doesn't mean, you know, that it sounded just like a trumpet would sound. But you know how clear, you know how distinct, you know how stirring a trumpet call can be. Well, that's what this voice sounded like. It was that clear. It was that distinct. It was that heart stirring. And notice now what the voice says here in verse 1. Come up here and I'll show you things which must take place after this. Now, John will be shown things that concern the future. I don't know if I need to belabor this point or not. Everybody see that in verse 1? Things which must take place after this. In other words, there is no way in which John can be describing what was past at the time of his writing. Do you understand what I mean by that? Now, the reason why I belabor that point is that there is a whole segment of the Christian church. There's a whole segment of understanding of the book of Revelation that wants to describe these amazing happenings of the Great Tribulation as things that happened before John even wrote. And John is describing them in sort of mystical code and recording history, but no. I mean, it just doesn't fit at all. Because it very, very plainly says that he's describing things which shall take place after this. Now, I want you to notice something else, too. As we get into this, Revelation chapter 4 through chapter 19, he's going to describe things, and there's just something you need to ask yourself as we go through the description. It doesn't so much apply to tonight's study, because tonight we're so much going to stay in heaven and see the heavenly scene. But as we start to see this judgment of God as it's poured out upon the earth, the other question you have to ask yourself is, have these things happened yet to the world? Or are they still future? As you're going to see, no, they haven't happened yet. One third of marine life has not died. We can safely say that. It just hasn't happened in human history. But the Bible says that it will. And so by this we understand that most of the events which John will describe for us in Revelation chapters 4 through 19 are events that are yet future in our day, yet we believe not all that far off distant. One other thing about verse 1, if you've noticed, if you heard the trumpet sound in verse 1, right? And then you heard a voice say, come up here. Does that remind you of anything in the scriptures? Well, of course, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 speaks of what is popularly called, though it's not called this in the Bible, but it's popularly called the rapture of the church. It means the catching away of the church, where the Bible says that, that on the great day of resurrection, at the coming of the Lord, that he'll call together his people and they will meet the Lord in the air, that he will catch them away and they'll be caught up and meet the Lord in the air. And that's what it'll be like for, for the saints on the earth in that day. They'll hear the trumpet and the Lord will say, come up here and we'll go. We'll go and meet the Lord in the air. 
I think that some commentators are very justified in seeing in verse 1 a picture, maybe a little bit of an illustration of the rapture of the church. The trumpet sounds, the voice calls, come up here, and John, who you might say represents the church in this, well, he goes up to heaven and he meets the Lord in the air. There he is. He's meeting the Lord. And the pattern is significant. Jesus finished speaking to and dealing with the churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Now, we discussed before how all the churches are comprehended in the seven. I mean, it's talking about the church as a whole. Now, after dealing with the church, Jesus calls John up to heaven, catching him away with a voice that sounds like a trumpet. All of this happens before the great wrath that will be described beginning at Revelation chapter 6. As the great judgment on the earth unfolds, John, who's a representative of the church, is in heaven looking down on earth. Let me share something else with you. Revelation chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, there was a word repeated very frequently. It must have been repeated maybe up to 10 times, maybe a dozen times in the chapters 1, 2, and 3 of the book of Revelation. It was the word church. The church here, the church there, church this, church that, over and over again in Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3. Friends, once you get to Revelation chapter 4, you don't see the church mentioned once in the chapters Revelation 4 to 19 because God isn't dealing with the church. The church is up in heaven with the Lord. He's dealing with a Christ-rejecting earth that's ripe for the judgment of God. So what happens with John? Look at it here, verse 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit. Now, what does that mean? Let me tell you, with all the understanding and wisdom I have as a student of the Bible for many years now, I don't know. (laughs) Who really knows exactly what it means? It, It could be that John was caught up bodily to heaven. That's a possibility. You know, caught up bodily to heaven and brought... I mean, it's certainly within the realm of Pilate. It could happen. It could be that John's body remained on earth and God gave him a spiritual experience, a, a spiritual vision of what happened. Maybe this happened in the spirit, not in the body, so to speak. We really don't know exactly what it means. We know that back at Revelation chapter 1, verse 10... John already said that he was in the Spirit. But here he's in the Spirit again in a different way. We don't exactly know. I think very telling for us is the passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul had his heavenly experience. In that passage, he said, whether I was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. He didn't know. You'd ask Paul, now Paul, did you actually, I mean, did your body go up? He would say, I don't know. I just know I was there whether it was in the spirit only or in the spirit and the body, whatever. But at least in the spirit, I was there. Look at it again, verse 2 here. Immediately I was in the spirit. And this is great. And behold, a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. Now put yourself in John's sandals just for a moment. Here you are on this earth and you're coming from the rocky, desolate isle of Patmos. For the past several years, your life has been a life of deprivation. And your life has been a life of hardship and difficult experiences. And then suddenly, as you're having this tremendous vision that began in Revelation chapter 1, 
In the midst of it all, after the Lord speaks to you, these seven letters to the seven churches, immediately after these things, you're caught up in the Spirit to heaven, and you are there in heaven. You can see the sights. You can hear the sounds. You can feel it as it were. This isn't some goofy vision that somebody might share just off the top of their head or their imagination. This was a real experience where a real man of God came to heaven and saw it and experienced it. Now, in that kind of situation, what would you notice first? Streets of gold, pearly gates, you know, uh, majestic mansions, angels everywhere. No, I want you to see what John notices first. What immediately grabs his attention. The, the, the first words out of his mouth in the description of heaven, verse 2, And behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. That's his entire point of focus. As far as John is concerned, what makes heaven heaven is that there's a throne there, and the throne is occupied. That's what makes heaven heaven. Oh, sure, I mean, the streets are fantastic, and the walls, and the gates, and the mansions, and the angels, and all the rest of the incredible, indescribable glory of heaven. It's all fantastic. But none of it makes heaven heaven. What makes heaven heaven is that there's a throne, and it's occupied throne, and everything else that John describes about heaven in this chapter, he describes it in relation to the throne. There's the throne set right there. Oh, look, and this is what's in front of the throne, and this is what's around the throne, and this is what's above the throne, and this is what's on the throne. But you just see it. What he's absolutely fixated on is the throne. John is fixated on the throne as much as anything because it's an occupied throne. Did you notice that in verse 2? And one sat on the throne. Now some people believe that there is no throne established in the heavens. Atheism or materialism would say there is no throne. There's no seat of authority or power that the entire universe must answer to. The bottom line of humanism is that there is a throne but that man sits upon it. But I believe that essentially man cannot live without the concept of a throne. Man cannot live without the concept of a supreme ruler. If man dethrones God, he'll inescapably put himself or some other man upon the throne. Perhaps it's a political leader. You have these great communist countries of the uh, 20th century that sought to dethrone God and declare themselves officially atheistic countries. They, they wanted to eliminate the conception of God. And so what did they do? They, they kicked God off the throne, and they would have liked to eliminate the throne, but they couldn't. So what did they do? They put Mao on the throne. They put Stalin on the throne. They put Lenin on the throne. And so in virtually every room of every building, there's, what do you have? You have a picture of Mao. You have a picture of Lenin. You have a picture of Stalin. Because he's enthroned. But he wasn't enthroned. When John goes up to heaven in verse 2, he sees one on the throne. It's not an earthly political leader. Oh, my friends, it's, it's the Lord God Almighty. And we can't think rightly about much of anything until we settle in our minds that, that there's an occupied throne in heaven and that the God of the Bible rules from that throne. 
That's fundamental truth here is self-evident. At the center of everything is an occupied throne. Perhaps you've heard me say this before. It's something I repeat often in my messages. If you've been with us here at least a few years, you may have heard me say it a half a dozen times. That the most elementary principle in theology is that there's a God enthroned in the heavens and you're not him. It really does begin there. And that's where John begins. So what did he see at the heavenly throne? Verse 3. It's amazing. And he who sat there was like... Just stop right there. He's going to describe for you what this being is who's on the throne. This is the description. He who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Isn't it fascinating that as John describes the occupant of the throne, he does not describe a distinct figure. He doesn't say there was a large being, you know, must have been about nine foot three, or, you know, on and on. No, no, no. There's no physical or actual description of a distinct figure. No, there's no similitude, there's no shape, there's no dimensions. No, the, the point of it is, is to point out the surrounding glory and outshining of the person of the Almighty King. And what does John see? He sees, he sees emanations of light. Look, there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. Instead of describing a specific form or figure, John describes emanations of light glistening in two colors. Jasper probably refers to a diamond, and it refers to a whitish kind of light. And then you have the sardius stone, which emanates a red sort of light. And so you have a whitish light and a red light emanating from the throne. What does that communicate? Why a white and a, and a red glistening, radiant glory from the throne. Some people have suggested that these two colors are meant to communicate the glory of the empty tomb, first of all, in that white shining light, and secondly, the sacrificial love of Calvary with the red light, the red glory emanating or reminding us of blood. Or perhaps, and this is another interesting link, we really don't have a lot to link this with, In the high priest's breastplate that he would wear, described in Exodus chapter 39, the first stone was jasper, the last stone was sardius. And it encompasses all of God's work, all of God's person, perhaps. But this is what he sees in verse 4. He sees these, excuse me, verse 3, this this emanation of, of a white light of glory and a red light of glory. And then notice the second part of verse 3. I find this absolutely remarkable. There was a rainbow around the throne. Now, the throne of God is surrounded by a green-hued rainbow. He says it's an appearance like an emerald. Now, why a rainbow? Why that? This is remarkable. Because the, the rainbow is a reminder of God's commitment to his covenant with man. Now, the the rainbow isn't the covenant, but it's like a reminder for God. It's like a post-it note for God. 
Reminding him something. Don't forget this. Don't forget your covenant with your people. And the covenant was that he would never, ever flood the earth again and destroy the earth by water. Now notice this. God puts this this reminder to himself of the covenant right there around the throne of God, around this setting of all sovereignty and power and authority and glory, this setting of the throne of God. God has placed a reminder of his own promise to never destroy the earth again with water, a promise that directs his sovereignty, that it's not capricious or against his promises. Do you understand what sovereignty is? Sovereignty is... You can do whatever you want to do. And you really can do it. I mean, you have the power. Not only do you have the ability, you have the power. That's sovereignty. And none of us are sovereign, right? None of us can do whatever we want to do. You try to break that habit. You try to correct that fault. You try to... Do this or that. You try to fix that thing. You find out very quickly how unsovereign we are. God is sovereign. He can do whatever he wants to do. Whatever. Now, if we were sovereign, it'd be a very dangerous thing, wouldn't it? Very dangerous thing. I remember seeing the Twilight Zone episode about the child who, whatever he wished came true. And so if he wished some little animal to be deformed, it came true. If he wished somebody to turn into some monstrosity, it came true. And did he use the power wisely as a good little boy? Oh, no. Little Anthony, I believe, was his name. (laughs) Everybody had to just be so kind to Anthony, and everything was happy with him. Isn't it a fine day, Anthony? And no matter what kind of horrible, grotesque thing, well, that's a wonderful thing, Anthony, because nobody wanted to be on the evil end of his sovereign power. You and I would be very different if we had sovereign power, right? We would be much worse. (laughs) Now, what I want you to see is the rainbow shows us how God is safe with sovereignty. God can do whatever he wants. And he says, what I want to do is honor my promise to my people. What I want to do is honor my covenant, my commitment to them. A throne says, I can do whatever I want because I rule. A promise says, I will fulfill this word to you and I cannot do otherwise. And so a rainbow around the throne is a remarkable thing. It shows that God will always limit himself by his own promises. It's a sign of the grace and the covenant of mercy, which always is fresh and green around the throne of God. So friends, the believer glories in the sovereignty of God because he knows that God's sovereignty is on his side. God is for us. It means that no good purpose of God relating to the believer will ever be left undone. He'll accomplish it. Let me read you a wonderful quote from Charles Spurgeon speaking on this text. He says, Oh, child of God, your heavenly Father and his sovereignty has a right to do with you his child as he pleases. But he will never let that sovereignty get out of the limit of his covenant. As a sovereign, he might cast you away, but he has promised that he never will and never will he. As a sovereign, he might leave you to perish, but he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. 
as a sovereign, he might leave you to be tempted beyond your strength. But he's promised that no temptation shall happen to you, but such as is common to man, and he will with the temptation make a way of escape. He's limiting himself by his promise. So here you have this throne of all glory, of all sovereignty, and up above around it where God can see it all the time is the rainbow, reminding him of his love, of his covenant, of his promise to man. Now, what did John see in front? Verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. So around the throne were 24 other thrones. In other words, God in all of his glory, in all of his splendor, in all of his sovereignty, he's not the only one reigning in heaven. Isn't that remarkable? Now, one thing that kings don't usually like is other thrones in their throne room. Now, there is an exception, though. The king will say, well, in my throne room, I'll allow a throne for my wife, the queen. And I'll also allow a throne for my son, the prince, and my daughter, the princess. And we'll be the royal family together, and we'll sit together in my throne room, each one on their own throne. Aren't you glad to be a part of the family of God? Because he says there's a throne for you. 24 thrones. Before the elders catch John's eyes, he noticed the 24 thrones they sat on. Isn't that interesting? Before he mentions the elders in verse 4, he mentions the thrones. That's what catches his eye first. Now later on, we're going to hear their song of worship. And, And these 24 elders, there they are. They're sitting around the throne of God on this throne. Around the throne of God suggests that they're in a circular pattern. You know what that means? None is any closer than the other. They all sit at equal distance away from God's throne. It's not like some are close enough. No, they're all at equal distance away. But who are these 24 elders? Well, commentators debate whether they're glorified human beings or whether they are angelic beings. On balance, I say without any hesitation, I believe that they represent God's people. For a couple reasons. First of all, they're called elders. And over and over again in the scriptures, elders represent the people of God, especially in the Old Testament. There's also 24 of them. And the 24 courses of the priesthood represented all the priests. That's in 1 Chronicles chapter 24. And then you have the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. Put them together, that's 24. It could be a wonderful way to describe encompassing all of the people of God, all of the redeemed of God from the past and into the present. But the real reason I believe that these elders represent the people of God, keep your finger here in Revelation chapter 4. Turn over to chapter 5, verse 9. This is a song that the elders sing. And they say, and they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Now, what does that tell you? First of all, it tells you it's not angels, right? Angels never speak that way. So we know that they're glorified human beings. Look at the next line. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now, that tells us that, yes, there are 24 elders there, and I believe that's what John actually saw. 
but these represent all of the people of God because you can't get just 24 tribes and tongues and peoples and nations. There's no way they could say that they came from every tribe and tongue and people and nation if there's only 24. What it must be is that they actually represent all of the people of God, all of the redeemed of God. Friends, I want you to understand something. When you see these 24 elders before the throne, there's a very real sense in which you should see yourself. You are there. If nothing else, through your representative, you are there. They represent you. Now back to Revelation chapter 4, verse 4. We see that these elders are clothed in white and they had crowns of gold on their heads. The white robes and the crowns of the elders also seem to indicate that they're human beings. In glory, of course, but the white robes of righteousness given to God's people, the crowns that are often promised to the people of God, over and over again. We don't hear of angels being crowned in this way. Now, understand here, redeemed, glorified man sits enthroned with Jesus, on lesser thrones to be sure, but thrones nonetheless. We are, as Romans 8 says, joint heirs with Christ, And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, it says that we will reign with him. Here are these amazing elders around the throne of God, crowned, robed, sitting there. What happens next? Verse 5, this is what John sees at the throne of God. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. What's amazing is to connect this with Exodus chapter 19 and 20, where the presence of God came down upon Mount Sinai. At that time and at that place, the presence of God was also accompanied with lightnings and thunderings and voices. It all reminds us of God's fearful presence at Mount Sinai, and it communicates the awe associated with the throne of God. This is a heavy place to be. There you are, you see it all. There's this shining red and white light. There's this green, glorious rainbow. There's the the thrones in front of it and the the elders sitting upon the throne. And you have lightning and thundering and voices and and angels, as we're going to see in a few moments, singing. It's a very impressive presence. Then you also see before the throne, it says seven lamps of fire. And these seven lamps are representative or emblematic of the Holy Spirit. The seven spirits of God is previously referred to in Revelation chapter 1, represented by seven burning lamps. The lamps of fire are important. The Holy Spirit isn't normally visible, but here he's making himself visible in a physical form, these lamps of fire. It's a very, very impressive, impressive scene. And what does he see in front of the throne? Verse 6. Before the throne... There was a sea of glass like crystal. Now, it's interesting to ask, is this sea, is this body of water, I guess, before the throne of God, is it really made of glass, or does it just look like glass? Commentators are really divided on the point. I've got two commentaries I love to use from wonderfully respected Greek scholars. One of them says, no, it just looks like glass. And the other one says, just directly contradicting the other, oh, no, it it really is glass. Which is it? I don't know. Whether it looks like glass or it actually is made of glass, 
I'll tell you, it's the finest glass because it's like crystal. Here's the other thing. It's a sea. Now, what's amazing about this is that this body of water before the throne is reminiscent of the laver in the tabernacle. In the tabernacle of God, standing in the outskirts of the temple building proper, right out in front of it, was the laver, was the sea. And in that laver, that, that, that huge bin of water that people would wash in, it was for cleansing. It was for the washing of the water of the word, so to speak. So here you have this, this sea of glass in front of the throne, and the elders, and the white and the red light, and the, and the green radiance shining all around, and the, the, the seven lamps of fire burning in front of the throne, and lightning, and thunder, and voices. If that's not enough, then take a look at the rest of verse 6. And in the midst of the throne, and around the throne, were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in the back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, and the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. These poor living creatures. What are these? Strange beings. Strange indeed. But from comparison with Ezekiel chapter 1 and Ezekiel chapter 10, we understand these creatures to be cherubim, the spectacular angelic beings who surround the throne of God. By the way, Satan, before his fall, was one of these high angelic beings, according to Ezekiel chapter 28. Now, cherubim were very prominent in the design of the tabernacle, which was meant to be a model of heaven. When you walked into the tabernacle that God told Moses to build, all on the inside, you would see on the coverings on the inside, artistic designs of cherubim. And especially when you walked into the Holy of Holies, you would see on every side around you and up on the top, and then even on the Ark of the Covenant, the design of cherubim. The idea was you're in heaven now, there's cherubim all around. And here John sees them when he comes up into heaven. It says that they were full of eyes in front of back, full of eyes around and within. We think of that and we think of some weird sci-fi movie or something (laughs) gross looking. What's that? Well, the multitude of eyes indicates that these living creatures are not blind instruments or robots. They know and they understand and they have greater insight and greater perception than any man. I mean, they can know so much because they have eyes everywhere. They can take in knowledge. They can take in understanding. They can take in wisdom in a way that you and I can't. These are incredibly intelligent, rational, wise, knowledgeable beings, far above our intelligence. You know what's amazing about this? These beings of incredible intelligence, of incredible understanding, live their existence to worship God. Isn't that amazing? If you want to put it in these terms, the smartest thing you can do, 
the wisest. I mean, if you really could see the world around you, not just with what you could see with the naked eye, but with the eye of the Spirit as well, if you could see everything as it really is, as these beings of incredible perception can see everything, you'd spend all your time praising God, worshiping Him, giving Him glory and honor. We might say that all failure to truly worship is rooted in a lack of seeing, in a lack of understanding. If you could understand for a moment, and I speak to myself when I say this as well, if we could understand for a moment how sinful and lost we are apart from Jesus Christ, and how great the salvation is that he has brought to us, and all that he has given us in the heavenly places in him, if we could see and understand those things for what they really are, you would never have a problem ever worshiping God again. Never. Not in the slightest. But it's when our eyes are dull, when our spiritual eyes are blind, or there's like cataracts above our eyes, and the vision is cloudy, and we can't see it clearly. Then it's like, well, why worship? Sing a bunch of songs. Why, don't, why aren't we around the campfire? Then I'll sing. Why don't, it doesn't matter, you know, I'll just stay quiet and listen or whatever. But if you see, if you understand, how can you not worship? By the way, the way that these super intelligent beings worship God, it also reminds us that our worship must be intelligent. You know, real worship is intelligent. It's not nutso. It's not crazy. Our service isn't to be rash, but reasonable, as it says in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Uh, give God your, your reasonable service. God hates a blind sacrifice. God hates when his people act in a superstitious way and, and just throw up to him crazy things in the name of worship. That's superstition. That's like the, how the pagans worship God. It's not how the true followers of the true God worship, no. No, we should worship God intelligently, understanding all that he is, understanding all that he does, and then how can you not lose yourself in worship before him? Uh, a thing that probably caught your eye as we read these verses, it's in verse 7. Describe the faces of these beings. Had a face like a lion, a face like a calf, a face like a man, a face like a flying eagle. John describes four cherubim, each with a different face. But I want you to see something here for a moment. Keep your finger here in Revelation chapter 4. Turn back in your Bible to the book of Ezekiel chapter 1. That's Ezekiel chapter 1. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And we can understand much more about uh, what these cherubim are and their four faces by just comparing Scripture with Scripture. Ezekiel chapter 1, beginning at verse 6. Each one had four faces, and each one had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of calves' feet. They sparkled like the color of burnished bronze. They had the hands of a man under their wings on four sides, and each of the four had faces and wings. Their wings touched one another. The creatures did not turn when they went, but each one went straight forward. As for the likenesses of their faces, each one had the face of a man, 
Each of the four had the face of a lion on the right side. Each of the four had a face of the ox on the left side. And each of the four had the face of an eagle. Now, from John's description in Revelation, you would think that there's four separate cherubim, each one having these four faces. But understanding it from the, what Ezekiel writes to it, we understand that each one of the cherubim has these four faces. It's just that one of these four faces is pointed towards John. When he looks up and sees, that's what he sees. He's just seeing one of the four on each one of the four. By the way, also, the book of Ezekiel describes four wings. John describes six. For some reason, two of the wings were hidden to Ezekiel. He just points out four of them. John points out that they have six. Now, we could get into quite a discussion on what these four faces mean. Why these four faces? Why the face of a lion, the face of a calf, the face of a man, the face of an eagle? Why those four? Some people have said it represents the four elements, the four cardinal virtues, the four faculties and powers of the human soul, the four patriarchal churches of church history, the four great apostles, the four orders of churchmen, the four principal angels, so forth and so on. Some commentators say that these four creatures speak of the ensigns of the lead tribes of Israel as they encamped in four groups around the tabernacle in the wilderness. One tribal group was headed by Judah, and that one was the the sign of the lion. One uh, tribal group was headed by Dan, and that was the the ensign of the eagle. One tribal group was headed by Ephraim, and that had the ensign of an ox. One tribal group had the ensign of Reuben, and that was the symbol of a man. Now, those ensigns and the symbols, that's not from the Bible. It's said to be from ancient rabbinical traditions and in the Talmud. But perhaps that's it. The four faces of the cherubim are often taken as symbols of Jesus, as represented in the gospel. I spoke about this just a little bit on Sunday, discussing the four gospels and how many different people see in them different symbols. Traditionally speaking, though there's been some disagreement about this through church history, Matthew's represented by the lion because he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Mark is represented by the ox or the calf because he presents Jesus as a worker, as a servant. Luke presents Jesus as the man because he's the perfect man. And John presents Jesus as the eagle because he's the high-soaring from the heavens person in the Gospel of John. If you want the safest interpretation, the safest understanding, I would say that each one of these four are chosen on the faces of the cherubim, because they represent, of all of animate creation, the utmost in excellence. Of all the wild animals, the lion is the king. Of all the domesticated animals, the ox is the king. Of all the birds that fly the air, the eagle is the king. And of all creatures that walk this earth, man is the king. And that's an ancient understanding verified by rabbis and such. And I would say, if nothing else, it may mean more than that. But at the very least, God chose those four faces for the cherubim because it speaks to us very powerfully, very clearly, that this is the excellence of all creation. So here are these four creatures around the throne. And notice this, what do they do? And they do not rest day or night saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is 
and is to come. They do not rest day or night. They don't stop. You can't stop these angels from praising God. The cherubim constantly repeat this before the throne. And might I say, I don't think that this is the only thing that they say. I don't think that they may as well just put this on a, on a CD and push the repeat button and put it on play and walk away. I think that they say more than this. But this is the essence of what they say. This is the message of it. This is the root of it all. This is the foundation of all their praise. God's holy nature and character is declared, and it's emphasized with a three-time repetition. Really, this draws on Hebrew ways of speaking and Hebrew ways of thinking. You know, in in the Hebrew language, they have ways that they use to emphasize things. We know how to use emphasis, right? In speaking, if I want to use emphasis, I can speak louder. Or I can speak slower for emphasis. If you're writing something, you can put it in a big font or bold-faced or underline it. There's all different ways you can give emphasis to something. In Hebrew grammar, one of the great ways that they give emphasis is by repetition. And so if you want to say that something is very strong, very emphasized, you talk about it in a double term. There's one wonderful example from the Old Testament where it describes the kings that were fleeing from Abraham when he was rescuing his brother Lot, or in that whole battle that took place in that whole uh, environment. And it says that some of the kings fleeing from these attacking kings fell into bitumen pits, or actually pits is what it just says in the Hebrew. Actually, if I should say, in the Hebrew, it just literally says pit pits. Were they bad pits? You know they were bad pits, because it says they were pit pits. I mean, it emphasized, it expanded, they're pit pits. Not just pits, but pit pits. Now here, to use something in, in, in the two adds emphasis. But to use it in the triplicate, that denotes the superlative. There's good, that uses the word once. That would be holy. Better, holy, holy. Best, the superlative, holy, holy, holy. In other words, you don't get holier. You can't add more emphasis than this. And the angels don't rest. They have no rest Yet might I say that they have no unrest either. They're a perfect peace. These angels surrounding God's throne, you know they're not uptight about this. You know they're not tired. No, they do it all the time. And what do they say? Holy, 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 emphasizing it in the strongest terms possible. Lord God Almighty. They declare that the Lord God is Almighty. Again, that Greek word that we saw back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, that ancient Greek word is pantokrater. And the idea of it is the one who has his hand on everything. That's who you are, Lord. You're the Lord God Almighty. And then he goes on, he says, who was and is and is to come. That describes God's eternal being. God is in the eternal now. He's the becoming one. You can't say God was. You can't say God will be. God just is. He's now. It translates the thought behind the meaning of the name Yahweh. God's eternal name, his eternal being. 
Let's finish the chapter here, verses 9 through 11. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne. Do you notice John is just obsessed with this throne? Yeah, he'll talk about the elders. Yeah, he talks about the angels. But you see, it's like he can't, everything, well, there's the angels. Wow, did you see that throne? Well, there's some of the elders, but did you see that throne? Everything comes back to the throne. Verse 10, the, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Now, what's interesting is that the worship of the 24 elders is prompted by the cherubim. Did you notice that? Verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, then the 24 elders fall down before him. In other words, the, the, the cherubim cue the worship of God's people. They are, if you will, the worship leaders of heaven. And what's interesting is Satan was one of these, wasn't he? But they prompt the worship in heaven. How do they prompt it? Do you think the cherubim are... are, Sing along now, this next one. (laughs) I I don't think so. You know know what I think it is? I think that the the elders look up at those cherubim and see them worshiping God. See these beings of incredible glory and, and, and wisdom and knowledge and power Far beyond man in his fallen state, not beyond man in his glorified state, but beyond man in his fallen state. And those elders say, I've got more to praise God about than they do. You know, they were never redeemed. Jesus never died for them. Jesus never rescued them from the pit of hell and sin and self. I'm not going to let them praise God more than I. No way. I'm not going to let their voices drown out ours. Come on. Let's go. We're not going to let be silent here. They're worshiping God, and we've got more reason to worship than they do. So think about it. Do you hear the birds singing in the morning? They're singing praise to God. You've got more reason to praise God than that bird. And why are you going to let that bird praise God more than you? The angels, the angels right now, they're, they're worshiping God. Are they going to exceed us? Well, they may have done so so far, but we intend to imitate them and by day and by night to pour forth our soul in worship to God. Notice what happens here. The 24 elders, they, they fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him. The 24 elders worship God. Do you know what it means to worship? The word worship, the English word, means to credit worth or worthiness to. In other words, if you were to look at something, a surfboard, and say, that that is one worthy surfboard. That, That has worth. Now, there's a sense, in the broadest sense of the old understanding of this original word worship, you're worshiping that surfboard. Let's hope you're not doing it in the literal sense. 
But you see, you're ascribing worth to it. You're giving it credit and honor. You're saying, this is worth something. This has value. That's what we do or should do when we worship God. We think of God, we let thoughts of Him fill our minds and fill our hearts, and we give to Him the worth and the honor and the worthiness that He deserves. And that's what the elders do. The elders credit God for their own work and reward, and they do this as they cast their crowns before the throne. They recognize that the work, that the worthiness, that it belongs to God, not to themselves. I mean, when somebody puts a crown on your head, they can put a crown on your head as a reward for work, right? Good job, here's a crown. Or they could put a crown on your head just for worthiness. You know, you're the royal son, you are worthy of this crown. Whether it be of work or worthiness or both, you see that crown, it's on you, it's, it's your work, it's your worthiness. You, you take that off and you say, this belongs to you, Lord. You're worthy. You're honorable. You're the one who has worth here. You're the one that I should look at and, and long at and appreciate and honor and glorify. You see, casting the crowns simply acts out their declaration. The, the declaration is, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Well, if God is worthy of glory and honor and power, then he should get the crown. I'll take it off and get You deserve it. You're worth it. By the way, there's also an allusion here made to a practice known in the Roman Empire. You know, the emperor of Rome ruled over many lesser kings. When the Roman Empire would conquer a kingdom, they wouldn't go up to the king and say, well, get off the throne, you're no longer a king. No, the, the Roman emperor would come up to him and say, oh, you can stay a king under me. Let's understand you're a king, but I'm over you. And there would be this practice where every so often the emperor of Rome would call together all these lesser kings who ruled underneath them, and these lesser kings would have to come before the Roman emperor, take off their crowns and set it before them. It's a way of saying, look, you've got the honor, you've got the power, you've got the authority. And then you know what the Roman emperor would do? He'd pick up their crown and he'd give it back to them. Say, fine, you acknowledged it. You acknowledge who has the word in it. You acknowledge who has the honor. Now take your crown back. I want you to notice too, it says that they all cast their crowns before the throne. They all did it. There wasn't some holding back. Not a single one of them held it back. You know, they, they didn't say, well, you know, I wish I had his crown. Uh, I just think I'll hold on to mine. I really like mine. Or another one said, you know, uh, gee, your, your crown isn't so hot. You know, mine's better than yours. And no, 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 there's no dissension. They're all unanimous. They cast their crowns at Jesus' feet. He says, you've created all things. Verse 11, and by your will they exist and they are created. The 24 elders worship God because of his creative power and glory. Do you understand that the fact that God is the creator gives him all right and every claim over everything, even as the potter has all rights and all claims over the clay? You see, God's right over us as creator is a fact that can be accepted and enjoyed, or it can be rejected. It'll lead to a lot of frustration if you reject it. But we need to understand our creatureliness before God. I have to say I've got a, a fondness for the King James Version here, verse 11. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor 
and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. It's a wonderful phrase. And for thy pleasure they are and were created. It reminds us that we exist to give glory and pleasure to God. And until we do that, we don't fulfill our created purpose. Now, because they represent all the people of God, the worship, the crown, the robes, the heart of these 24 elders, they all belong to us also. Friends, I believe it. There's a throne in heaven that no one can occupy but you. There's a crown in heaven that nobody can occupy or nobody can wear but you. There's a song to sing in heaven that only you can sing. God has a part for you there, a place for you there. But this is what it means also. It means you should be planning ahead for that great day. Let's say you walk into a great cathedral and there's this tremendous choir singing. And they're there, they're just, I mean, amazing. One of those really fantastic choirs. You walk in there and you just say, hey, can I join in? What would they say? they say, well, look, first you've got to learn the tune. You've got to join with us for a while. And listen, we don't want to have untrained voices when we join with the choirs above. So here's the question for you. Have you learned to cast your crown down at Jesus' feet? Have you learned to worship him? Is it going to feel strange for you in heaven to truly worship God? Is it going to feel strange for you to cast your crown before him? Is it going to be like, yeah, I know what this feels like. I did some of this on earth. Friends, that's the call before us. And let's pray and ask the Lord to seal it to our hearts. Father, we do ask that you give us a vision of heaven above. That you help us, Lord, to appreciate this incredible glory, this occupied throne in heaven. And Lord, as we consider it, and the greatness of the one who sits on the throne, then Lord God, we know that we'll worship you. We know that we'll honor you. We know that we'll give you the glory you deserve and cast our crowns before you. We praise you, Lord. Give us that thought, that mindset. Fill our minds with this glory of heaven. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.